Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Box Hill. In Emma, the Highbury Friends, which is basically the name of their official Saturday morning cartoon, (laughs) plan an outing to Box Hill that, after a few delays, finally takes place. The episode today is not really about the things that happen at Box Hill, though we mention some of the social awkwardness between Emma and Miss Bates in our episode about spinsters, and I think some of the word game stuff also came up in our episode on Regency Scrabble. But we are more concerned today with the actual location and its relation to the theme of geographical sightseeing. There's lots of stuff going on in the scene that we will certainly be talking about in other episodes, but that's our focus for now. For instance, the narrator and Emma tells us from the very beginning of the planning stages for this outing that, quote, Emma had never been to Box Hill. She wished to see what everybody found so well worth seeing. What's the deal with this place? Why is it so great? (laughs) So our focus today is on the Box Hill scene and Emma, but specifically on the literal scene of Box Hill, what they would have been seeing and taking in when they arrived at their destination. We don't actually get a whole lot of description from Austin, but she does kind of talk to us about the logistics of getting there. So here's the quote from the book. She says, They had a very fine day for Box Hill, and all the other outward circumstances of arrangement, accommodation, and punctuality were in favor of a pleasant party. Mr. Weston directed the whole, officiating safely between Hartfield and the vicarage, and everybody was in good time. Emma and Harriet went together, Miss Bates and her niece with the Eltons, the gentleman on horseback. Mrs. Weston remained with Mr. Woodhouse. Nothing was wanting but to be happy when they got there. Seven miles were traveled in expectation of enjoyment, and everybody had a burst of admiration on first arriving. But in the general amount of the day, there was a deficiency. So we get a lot of these kind of like, we know how they all got there, and they're like, woohoo, we're here. And then like things just like, never really kind of materialize into like a satisfactory outing. Everything just is off all day. But the landscape is stunning, right? Yes, exactly. So let's talk about the actual location of Box Hill. First of all, Box Hill is a real place, which is so fun if you are a nerd about these sort of things. So even though Highbury is fictional, we have some sense of its relative location as we know where Box Hill is, and obviously London and some of those other places. And specifically that Highbury is seven miles away from Box Hill. So like, we already have a pretty good sense of of where Emma grew up and this famed sightseeing location that is not too far away. And we don't usually get this with Austin, right? She Like the fact that she's actually kind of triangulating a space force where we can start to really geographically imagine where Emma grows up. You can really kind of pinpoint where it is in relation to some of the other real places that she mentions, like specifically, you know, in terms of miles, yeah. like how far away they are. I mean, this is like some real nerd stuff, you guys. (laughs) Box Hill is located in the North Downs, and these are chalk hills in Surrey that actually go all the way down to the White Cliffs of Dover in Kent. And the name for Box Hill comes from the box trees that grow on one of the hill slopes. And Austin was actually visiting family in Surrey in the summer of 1814 while she was still in the drafting phases of Emma. So it's possible that she even visited Box Hill while she was there. I mean, we don't know for sure, but... It's still today an extremely popular destination and viewpoint and is part of the Surrey Hills area of outstanding natural beauty. (laughs) I love that that's titled that way. I know. I love that the use of that in the UK. I just think it's so perfect. It's especially popular with walkers, hikers, and cyclists. And it's actually a bit of a cycling destination. 
According to Cycling Weekly, it's the most popular cycling climb in the world, at least as of 2019. I think this is based off of there's like an app or something that hardcore cyclists use. They kind of like self-report their data. So anyway, according to that, it's the most popular cycling climb in the world. And Boxel was actually part of the route for the men's and women's road races in the 2012 Olympics. And also, what I really appreciate is that the National Trust has a whole section on their website about visiting Boxel with your dog. Spending time with your canine companion at Box Hill, and I really enjoyed that. Plan your day around your around your little buddy. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I would. So <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense, right? Now we want to talk a little bit about like what actually happens during this kind of outing that they're describing in Emma. What's an exploration party going to actually do? It's it's essentially a sightseeing outing that they're going on. So I mean, even though there's a picnic happening here, that's not like the main purpose of going to Box Hill. So let's talk a little bit about the way Austin describes the events that are supposed to be happening at Box Hill. So she says, they separated too much into parties. The Eltons walked together. Mr. Knightley took charge of Miss Bates and Jane. And Emma and Harriet belonged to Frank Churchill. And Mr. Weston tried in vain to make them harmonize better. It seemed at first an accidental division, but it never materially varied. Mr. and Mrs. Elton indeed showed no unwillingness to mix and be as agreeable as they could. But during the two whole hours that were spent on the hill, there seemed a principle of separation between the other parties too strong for any fine prospects or any cold collation or any cheerful Mr. Weston to remove. We get here the the, the idea that they are supposed to be like as groups exploring this vantage point, right? That all of the groups are supposed to be checking out all the different varied ways that you can enjoy the sights at Box Hill because it is a hill that has just stunning views of the Surrey landscape. Yeah, you're basically just supposed to be kind of like walking around and then going, ooh, ah. Because yeah. they're definitely not, I mean, there is ladies present here. So it's not like they have mountaineering gear sure. on or anything. Sure, know? like, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and because this is, I mean, I say I say it's an exploration kind of party, but it's actually just like, it's sightseeing. It's like literally like, walk to this side of the hill and ooh-ah. Then walk to this side of the hill and ooh-ah. And if you're a lady, you know, like bust out your watercolors, that sort of thing. Exactly. So, I mean, it's very much so this is a sightseeing group. And so, yes, they're going to have a picnic later, but like purpose here is to just take in the views and enjoy yourself. Um, and I love the way that Austin writes about this because she is describing it in terms of like, okay, Box Hill is a failure. This is actually a very cringy part of uh, to read. It just is. But the fact that Austin's like, nothing clicked, but she's kind of leaving it open as to like why everything's off. But it does, it, you know, it, it does demonstrate here, at least in this in this quote, what normal groups were going to do, which is to you know wander around the hill and enjoy, and enjoy the view. Yeah, it's the view itself is really the primary draw. But after that. It's basically the company that you're in, right? That is sort of like making yeah. the day a success yeah. or not. And that's obviously, it's not going super well. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, this is a really panoramic view. Like you're getting, you're just getting amazing views from all different vantage points. And, you know, like at one point, Frank is even like, he's like, let everybody on the hill hear me if they can. Let my accent swell to Michelob on one side and Dorky on the other, just sort of implying like, we have this just vast expanse of land all around us and yeah. let the valleys hear me roar <laughs> kind of thing. You know, and this is like, one, he's being kind of obnoxious, but also the view really <laughs> is so wide and vast. So <laughs> there's two things going on here. Pete Frank, right? Because this was such a popular site for landscape, this is a, this is a popular site for people to visit, still is. This is where I get to talk about something that I have been like chomping at the bits to talk about for a long time. 
And this is the clawed glass. This is a, a specific type of tool that was used to kind of view landscapes. I'm going to kind of get into that a little bit here. So a clawed glass is essentially a slightly convex black mirror that you carry in this kind of small compact. Like think of compact mirrors that you carry around or makeup compacts, but instead of a flat silver-based mirror, it's the dark mirror and it's con it's convex. So it kind of has that bubbling out. It's not like the concave mirrors that give you like right up and close and personal with your pores. <laughs> but this one is it's dark tinted and it bubbles out slightly. And the purpose of this is that it changes the way that you look at the landscape. And this is actually, they're named after the painter Claude Lorraine or, or Claude Gelet, depending on, you know, he painted under his pseudonym of, of Lorraine. And he was a painter who he was a 17th century landscape painter who really played a lot with muted tones and then like highlights. So landscape painting becomes really popular in the 18th century. And the idea of the picturesque and the landscape, which we kind of talked about in our episode about dead leaves. This is a thing that people are trying to pursue landscape, pursuing this idea of the picturesque and the aesthetic. Even though they're named after Claude Lorraine, there's no actual evidence that he used this. It just, it just is something that is used to kind of try to imitate his style and, and kind of capture that in a, in, a, in a unique way. He was a picturesque influencer. That's right. He 100% was. Like everybody wanted that clawed look, right? So the way that you would use this is you turn your back to the landscape, you hold up your mirror, you look at the mirror, and then like you're looking at the landscape behind you. And what the convex mirror does is that it pushes the scenery into a single focal point in that reflection, which is, you know, considered this picturesque or aesthetic kind of clawed-esque thing. Because it's a black mirror, there's also this like smoky coloring that kind of changes the way that the light is playing. So it's more muted tones. So you're getting the whole point of this is basically to make the landscape that you're looking at more aesthetic. Like let's improve on this landscape here. <laughs> and it's so funny, like you go through all this trouble of going to this amazing landscape or whatever, and you don't even look directly at exactly. it. Exactly. You're just your back is turned to exactly. it because you're looking, you're looking at this reflection in your clawed glass yeah. instead. And it's so funny too because it's like, yeah, you go to a place like Box Hill and you're like, oh my gosh, this is stunning. But I think I can improve this with a clawed glass. <laughs> like that's the way that people approach this. But because, because it kind of changes the tones and the kind of focal points, this was actually, these clawed glasses were incredibly popular with landscape painters in the 18th century. But we also get like English poets like Thomas Gray references them in his in his work. We know that Thomas Gainsborough, who we mentioned in our episode on Darcy's portrait, he sketched with one. And William Gilpin, who is actually kind of the big figure for like defining the picturesque landscape concept. Like again, if we're talking like influencers, he's kind of the big one that's like, you know, remember in Marianne's in the episode about Marianne's dead leaves, we were talking about like twisted trees. That's that Gilpin. He definitely had like 500,000 followers on exactly. his like dark academia Instagram page, for sure. He yeah. did, absolutely. So he was a really, really big advocate of the Claude Glass. He was like, yeah, please, everyone use them. It's the best way to experience nature. He even went so far as to put a Claude Glass on his carriage so that like he could be like jauntering across the countryside, but having an aesthetic view from his carriage window. <laughs> oh, that's so extra. <laughs> I know. I love it. But yeah, these were incredibly popular with sightseers in this era. And so people like this Box Hill party would have made a habit of traveling to picturesque places for an aesthetic enjoyment. And then the tourists would, you know, pull out their clawed glass, 
from their pocket, turn around, alter the gorgeous view, and then enjoy that as like as if it were a painting. It's just, it's so funny. There were even actually like tinted glass lenses that you could purchase. And like, so you've got your clawed glass and then you're like, mm, I think we need a rose tint. And you pull up this like glass little thing and be like, okay, now, oh, look, now it's, now it's rosier and that gives us bah. And then it's like, I need blue. Oh, it's so stormy and mysterious. And like, it's like Lightroom presets that you can buy on Etsy. It's 100% that like we think we're innovating now. Come on, clawed glasses. Get your clawed glass and then you get, you know, your your other filters sold separately, right? I mean, this is the Instagram of this time. Like, it's impossible not to see that parallel. You're going to frame the picture just right. <laughs> You're going to put your filters on and like, oh, look at this. This is, I am a landscape photographer. Right. <laughs> I am an aesthetic landscape influencer. Yeah. There's also like that selfie component too, because you're turning your back to the thing you're supposed to be admiring. It's really like a missed opportunity on Austin's part, because I feel like there's no way that Frank Churchill would not have just had pockets full of these. They would have just been falling out of his pockets. Oh, uh, yeah. So he could be cool. Like, oh, these are these are the rage in London people. Get your yeah. clawed glass and do Box Hill right. Oh, remember when I went to go get a haircut? I also picked up a pack of clawed glasses. One for each of you. <laughs> oh, gosh. And can you just like imagine him also like putting himself in the frame? Like, oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> check how gorgeous I am in the landscape. And to be clear, we are gently mocking this, but we fully acknowledge that like we all do this. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. We are gently mocking all of human behavior as a whole. <laughs> right? Because it is so funny that we do go see these beautiful landscapes and then turn our backs and take a picture. We have to document it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do it all the time. Like I'll be at something and I'm just like, oh, l let me spend the whole time taking pictures of the thing and like taking pictures of my daughter <laughs> doing the thing because I have to preserve the moment. But it would probably be better if I just put my phone down and just took it in with my yeah. eyeballs and like let my brain make those connections, yeah. you know? <laughs> and again, we think of this as like a seriously modern problem. But obviously, we're still having this, you know, 18th century, we're still having people being like, can't be in the moment, we have to make this more picturesque, like improving on nature with that filter. It's just so human, right? It's just so human. So this is just like a little, a little bonus feature, a little Easter egg for you that if you're really interested in clawed glasses and how this might have been represented in literature. And I mean, honestly, how could you not be? Seriously, I'm obsessed with them. I think they're fascinating. But in, in 1798, the author James Plumtree wrote a comic opera called The Lakers. Not like not the LA Lakers. We're talking like Lake Districters. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a satire on going to these to the Lake District and taking tours. And there's a whole scene where one of the characters named Veronica is like, Oh, everything's so gorgeous. And then she's actually pulling out her clawed glass. And then she's also pulling out the filters. And she's like, oh, it is gorgeous. Now we're going to have this filter on it. And then we're going to have this. So if you wanted to see the modern comparisons, like they exist in this piece. Obviously, today, even setting aside, you know, the fact that we're all always on our phones and always documenting everything. Like I think of, I think often about the fact that I have, I have more pictures today of my dog than my parents had of me as a human baby <laughs> yes you know yes. and then if i start thinking about how many pictures i have of my actual child like my actual human child it's staggering let's just say like i've had to upgrade my storage multiple times you know <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to that factor you know obviously people today still love to travel to a picturesque viewpoint or vista people still love to visit box hill like it's still a hugely popular destination so while back then you you might have visited the sites painted the scenery, told all your friends about it, etc. Today, you are making sure to capture the perfect movie mm -hmm. shot of you overlooking the edge of a cliff or something. 
and then you're going to post it with an appropriately perfect filter. And, you know, and even if the day was truly fully filled with like blisters and bugs and the worst day ever, <laughs> your caption is just going to be, it's only going to talk about nature's bliss or yes. whatever. Yes. You know what I mean? like, <laughs> so the point here is just that basically nothing about any of this has changed over the last 200 years. Like nobody is setting any trends here. Exactly. We are all doing the same thing we have done for forever. The only thing that has changed is the mode of documenting and sharing your aesthetic journey. Everything else is the same. It's 100%. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. We have always, as humans, had this desire to sort of document what we were doing, but also make it seem like it was like slightly better than it actually yeah. was. Yes. And then tell everybody about and it And then afterwards. tell people other... Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why it's so funny with, with the Box Hill expedition in Emma is that... It actually sucked. It actually 100% was awful. It was actually the worst day ever. Yeah. It's like... And like I said, it's like a super cringy part of the book. You can already imagine like the modern Instagram version of this would be like, had a great day with all my friends. Can't wait to do it again next year. And everybody literally hates everybody after the trip. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and, and part of the reason that the, tr the trip goes so poorly is that obviously we've got a lot of roiling tensions with relationships and stuff like that throughout the novel as well. But we actually do have like, particularly with Frank Churchill, Jane Fairfax, and Emma, I think we're seeing three young people that are feeling a little bit like cornered with what they have as far as options. I have less sympathy for Frank than any of the other the ladies in this situation, but yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Frank is actually, so like the day before the Box Hill expedition, they're having their little Donwell Abbey outing picking strawberries. And he shows up there and he's a total jerk the whole time he's there. And he's moaning and groaning about how stifled his life is. And he is like, oh, I just am going to run away to Switzerland. And I was like, okay, then go like, have fun with that. Like, what's your problem? It's one of my favorite moments actually between Frank and Emma, because the whole book, they've had this kind of like gross flirtation yes. that I mean, not that there's anything wrong with flirting, but just like, we know that the motivations behind all of it. Frank's just kind of motivations like, for this are awful. Yeah, yeah, it's just gross. And in this moment, I just like that Emma's just like, yeah, I am not here for you whining about the fact that like, you have the most privileged life ever. Yes. And she pretty much calls him on that, like pretty straightforward. And so the next day they go to Box Hill and he's no longer complaining about running away to Switzerland, but he's just being a tool the whole day because he is flirting outrageously with Emma for really poor reasons, right? I mean, like Frank sucks, especially if your name is Jane Fairfax during this, this <laughs> outing, right? Because Jane is like, she can't even have a nice outing. Like this technically could have been a lovely outing for her getting out of the village and getting out of her small apartments with her aunt. But no, he's being awful. So her, you know, boyfriend is being the worst flirting with Emma right in front of her. Like, and he knows he's being a jerk. And he's doing it on purpose because I had this huge fight the day before. And it's like, let me just take my revenge on you. I, it just, it's an, it's an ugly look on Frank. It's just, it's really not good. And so she is, in this outing where she's kind of being forced to watch Frank flaunt himself, basically. And so, so like Box Hill for Jane Fairfax is a really crappy prospect. She's getting a panoramic view of the scenery and a panoramic view of Frank's character. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So she's, she's basically sitting on top of this hill, just hating life. And then, of course, we have to talk about Emma in the context of this Box Hill outing, because it is it's like such a pivotal moment for her emotionally. And we're not going to get too much into the whole thing with her and Miss Bates and Knightley. You know, we talked about that in our spinster episode. But just in terms of the outing itself, for Emma, a person who has been quite geographically confined, especially when you consider her wealth and status, like Jane Fairfax has had way more movement oh, yeah. than Emma has. 
she has traveled much more. She has seen much more. You know, and Emma, again, with how wealthy she is, she should be going to London for the season. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's not. She's very much tied to Highbury and Hartfield due to her father. And, you know, I think we get the sense from Emma that, you know, she is very clever. She's handsome, clever, and rich. <laughs> right. And yet she's been put into this very confined life. Yeah. So she's a little bored. And I think that's part of why she takes up matchmaking. You know, it's like a mental exercise that is sort of available to her as a woman of her time and class. So the opportunity for even a little day trip and one where she'll be away from her father for the entire day is really a big deal. Like it's a huge endeavor and wouldn't have been at all possible if Mrs. Weston wasn't like, listen, I'm about to pop a baby out. Like, I'll go hang out with your dad for the day. I'm good. And it's especially more telling when you consider the fact that Box Hill was a renowned spot for sightseeing, even at this time. And so it's really noticeable that Emma has never been, despite living nearby her entire life, seven miles away. And she's never been to this place that people come from all over to, you know, take in the views, as it were. You know, we mentioned this quote earlier, but I think it's so revealing when Austin writes, Emma had never been to Box Hill. She wished to see what everybody found so well worth seeing. The fact that she's 21 and she's never seen this, it's kind of revealing. Yeah, clearly, like people have been talking about this all around her, like, oh, Box Hill, Box Hill. You know, even Mrs. Elton, who's a newcomer to the village, is just like, oh, we must go to Box Hill. And Emma's over here like, oh, yeah, I've never been. I don't get out much. I basically go between Hartfield and the village. And that's it. Yeah. And they really lean into this in the 2009 Emma adaptation. Romola Garai plays Emma as the young woman who, like, she's really content, but she really, like, the fact that there's, like, this Box Hill expedition, like, they make a moment of... Knightley actually gives her a book that has an image of Box Hill in it, and it becomes kind of something that she aspires to. Yeah, it's like, oh, you can't, you know, go to Europe or go farther afield, but you can at least go to Box Hill. Yeah, and it's and it's meant to be this moment where we see that Knightley sees what Emma's life is like, and he sees how this is restricting to her, and he wants to give her something beyond this. And that's why, again, in the adaptation, spoiler alert, ends with her going on a honeymoon to the seaside and like, that that's the most romantic gesture that Mr. Knightley can give her is to take her away from Highbury. And they do go to the seaside in the novel, like they go to the seaside for two weeks. And but it's just like a lie in the adaptation. She doesn't know where they're going to go. You know, he doesn't tell her. She looks out the care. She's like, oh, the seaside. It's just she's going to start weeping yeah. because she's never been anywhere. Yeah. And I, I love that the adaptation adds that layer of nuance to it because it's something that is there in the text but getting to see it kind of played out in a more literal visual context is really revealing. So going back to the scene at Box Hill and thinking of Jane, Frank, and Emma all there, this whole scene in the novel, it's just this really interesting juxtaposition of this beautiful, you know, scenic vista and experience of being in the great outdoors. You know, you can just imagine Marianne Dashwood just like, oh, the sublime. Uh She would be (laughs) all the exclamation marks. You know, she would have so much feeling. And it's all that combined with, and especially for these three characters, just combined with the worst kind of social undercurrent and just general awkwardness in this group with Jane and Frank and Emma. And then, of course, with, you know, everybody else, with Miss Bates and the Eltons and, of course, Knightley just seeing it all. I mean, the only person who's kind of like, what a great day is is Mr. Weston. (laughs) Although it says in the text, though, that it's like Mr. Weston is trying to fix things because he's like, I can tell things aren't going well, but he can't. It's so bad that even he can figure out that people aren't having the best time, but he's still not quite astute enough to really understand why it's all going exactly. to be. Exactly. Exactly. He's like, can't put my finger on it. Which is like, maybe you shouldn't have just invited the Eltons to be, you know, broke everybody's cardinal rule, which is just like, 
inviting randos to somebody else's party. <laughs> it's true. It's true. He has no clue. But with best of intentions. He's like, we're all friends. We'll all have the greatest time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he just, yeah, he can't read a room at all. Mr. Weston, nice guy, whatever. But can't you just imagine anyone more exhausting to live with? I guess. <laughs> he's just like making muddles and then like doesn't have a clue that he's stuck his foot in it. Yeah. Like a golden retriever puppy that just never went to class, like never had training, you know? No, I couldn't. <laughs> Love it. Well, you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin, where we will definitely be sharing some fun related images for this episode. And on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. We're just basically everywhere you could possibly want to find us. And we just wanted to say that we so appreciate all of you who have been listening to the podcast and it does feel very awkward to say, but truly, if you like the show, please consider sharing with a friend or sharing it out online. And if you're curious about how you could support us, the best way to do that is by hitting that five stars on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. And if you have an extra minute or two, just leaving us a positive review. So many of you have already done that and we seriously appreciate it so much. Like So much. It makes us like a little weepy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so many feels. Yes, exactly. Just all the hard eye emojis. And stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about Jane Austen's childhood at Steventon Rectory, mixing it up with a little biographical information. We've gotten some requests from people to do some, you know, just provide like a little bit more general context information. So we'll just kind of be doing these, kind of like interspersing them throughout as we go. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.